John chapter 9. I'd appreciate it if you take your Bibles there. Now, uh, we will almost preach on the entire chapter tonight, but we're going to do it in a very different way. So throughout the entire sermon, I, I'd ask that you'd keep your Bible open to John chapter 9, because every single point, we will continue to read more and more Scripture. Uh, and so we're going to build upon it like that. So I know sometimes the temptation is there halfway through the sermon. We've read the, read the passage. We often close our Bibles to focus. But let's just, this time, keep our Bibles open because we will continue to read throughout the passage tonight. Uh, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, tonight I pray that you'd bless this sermon. And Lord, as I've already asked uh, before the sermon, that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would now help us as we gather as a congregation. Lord, we want to hear from you. And Lord, on the heels of such a great sermon this morning, I just pray that the Spirit would come as He did this morning in this evening service. And so, Father, I pray this in Your Son's precious name. Amen. Now, I, I remember when I was much younger, I was still in public school by this time. And, and uh, so I, I went to JCA uh, when I was in sixth grade. So from the, uh, sometime between the first and the fifth grade, I wrote my very first school paper. And I, it's funny, I remember exactly what this school paper was on. It's funny how you're interested in the things that your, your parents are interested in. And more specifically for me, I was my dad's running bunny, so I was always interested, interested in the things that he was interested in. And so for the very first paper that I ever wrote, I was probably, I would say it was a fourth grade paper. Uh, very first thing I ever wrote, I guess the English teacher wanted to challenge us and see where we were. But... Uh, she said, you need to write a small biography over someone's life. And so even though I understood very little about it, I wanted to write a biography over Evander Holyfield. Now, I don't know much about boxing at all. I don't quite understand the odds that Vegas places on fights or anything. But during this time of my life, this was right when Tyson and Holyfield were really big uh, opponents. And, and Holyfield had just beaten Tyson for the very first time. And, and actually, I believe this was the, the match before uh, he, uh, Tyson bit Holyfield's ear off. So there was a lot of competition between these guys. I mean, everybody knew that Tyson hit harder than probably anybody in the last decade. And, and man, that guy could hit guys and just knock them cold. And Holyfield, though, seemed to be a bigger, stronger, better athlete than Tyson. And so uh, everybody watched these fights. And even though I was very small, didn't understand a lot, and even when the fights were on, I didn't watch them much, that's what I chose to write this paper on. And so for me as a fourth grader, I decided to write my page paper on legal yellow pad with handwriting because, you know, at that age, you don't even know that typing is really a thing. And so I wrote it out by hand on legal yellow pad. And, uh, and uh, it was a very unique experience. And I turned that in and she probably failed me because she was a pacifist. I don't know, but uh, uh, I know that that was a unique experience. Now, and let's just face it tonight, most of us will never be famous enough to, in order for us to publish a biography. I mean, if you look at it, there's a lot of biographies, and, and I was looking today at the plethora of n numerous biographies in this world. There's some good, some not so good. There's, but there's a lot of people who at one time in their life said, I'm important enough to write and publish a biography, and so people read those biographies. This evening in the sermon, what I want to do is I want to simply take a look at the biography of a blind beggar. That's all it is. But he's not a very important character in the Bible. He's just right here. And the biography 
of a blind beggar is exactly what we'll look at tonight. As we look, though, I will, I will show you four different distinctions in this biography. Just like other biographies, you usually have an early life and then uh, career occupational stages, and then you move on to later accomplishments. That's where we're at tonight. Four different uh, chapters, if you will, in this man's life. So first of all, in verses 1 through 7, we look at the first chapter of his life, and this is a miraculous experience that takes place in his life. Look with me in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, and uh, uh, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Now this is not the first time in the, in the Gospels that the Lord Jesus Christ has done an amazing miracle right in the front of all the disciples and the others that were gathered around. Uh, it was pretty often when the Lord would just take his divinity and take his godness and just go ahead and and cure somebody of some disease or, or heal their eyes or make them hear again. And that was no unique thing. And, and that's an amazing thing that our God has that power, is it not? Well, tonight, that's exactly what we find. This amazing experience has taken place in this man's life. But I want you to notice, first of all, tonight in this amazing experience, that there was a prescribed problem. Look in verses 2 and 3. We find the disciples wanting to be taught by the master himself. So they say, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they, they, they have the old school mindset, and, and they're asking the Lord, Lord, we see this man is blind, and, and your teachings are teaching us to care for the poor and care for the hurting, and, and Lord, that's what we want to do. But if you would just share with us now, we see this man's blind, Whose fault is it? Is it his? Or is it his parents? Or, or Lord, just please tell us why this man has a problem. But then the Lord begins to tell us in verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So Jesus quickly tells them with no doubt in his voice, saying, this man didn't sin, and, and this man doesn't have this disability because of sin in his life or sin in his parents' life. He has this problem so that I can help him. And before we get too deep in this sermon, I want to stop right here and share with you, that's the reason we have problems as well. It's no secret that if there were no problems, there would be no need for his help. It's in the valley where we see him more clearly. It was in the furnace where the children, uh, the three Hebrew children, met the Son of God. And it's in the furnace, and it's in the valley, and it's in the problems and turmoils of our life 
that we more clearly see the grace of our Lord. And so these men look and say, Lord, why does he have this problem? And Jesus says, because I gave it to him. Today, friend, I want to share with you quickly, if you have a problem, often it may be because God's given it to you to help you through it. To help you learn. To help you see that He can get you through it. Oh, do you want to be stretched? I remember they used to have these toys called Stretch Armstrong. Many of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But this toy did not box. This toy did not kick or throw any punches or even really light up. This toy did nothing but stretch. And you could take Stretch Armstrong and you could stretch him super far. And your whole goal was not to see how far you could stretch him, but your whole goal was to see what was on the inside. God wants to see what's on the inside. He's stretching us. And often we cry and we beg, Lord, please remove this problem. But God's saying, I want to help you through the problem. There was a prescribed problem. Secondly, I want you to look at a prolonged plight. Look in verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, I don't even want to begin to speculate how long this man had had this problem. But I know that it was from his birth, and I know that he is now considered a man. So you and I can just about agree on the fact that he's had this blindness for quite some time. Would you agree with that? And so Jesus walks by, and, and, and uh, he sees this man that's blind from his birth, and, and the disciples begin to question him and ask him and say, Lord, uh, uh, whose fault was this? And the Lord says, oh, it's nobody's fault. Well, could you now imagine the man... After the Lord heals him, couldn't you imagine the desire that he had? He said, Lord, I wish you'd have showed up about 10 years ago. I remember when I was just a little kid, and I had to sit on the porch of my parents. And I remember hearing all the kids having fun, and I remember seeing all the thi- uh, hearing all the things take place, and, and people would have to bring items to me and say, this is what this feels like. Now let me describe to you what it looks like. And as just a little child, while, if you will, help me, uh, let me describe this to you, as all the other kids were having fun, he was not. And I don't don't want to speculate on how long he had had this issue, but you and I both agree it was quite some time. But can I say, I believe it helped him appreciate the sight more. Because... As the whole entire span of his life had been spent in darkness, missing out on things that others were able to partake in, the day he was able to see, it was special. It was was a new experience, and, and I have to say that day two was probably just as good as day one. 
And I have to say that day three was not getting old because for the old time in his life, for so long he had been blind, but now day one and day two and day three and day four are special. Every single day he wakes up to a new sunrise. It's special. Why do we want out of our issues so fast? It's almost like we want to get out of the valley to stand on the peak for just a brief time. We want to, we want to feel the success, but I have to say, when you're on the mountaintop all the time, you never appreciate the mountaintop. You never appreciate those times when things seem to be going great at the job and things seem to be fine in the bank account and money stretching farther than it ever has and no flat tires and no issues and nothing like that. And, and, and those are the times we want. But when we're there, we forget to appreciate it. Um, this blind man, I have to say that even though he the first half of his life, the whole length of his life up until now had been spent in darkness and blindness, I think that day one and day two were special. They were good. It was a great thing for him. So please, don't rush out of your valley. Don't rush out of your problem because that is where we meet God. That's where we see Him. Moses spoke with God when he needed answers, when he needed help. And I just believe fully that when we have issues, God can more clearly communicate with us. We see a prolonged flight. Now, thirdly, we see a personal performance. Now, look here in verse number 3. Do not miss the wording the Bible uses here. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in... What's the next word? Him. Now, I've read this passage dozens of times. I've often read it with this in mind, so that everybody could see God in his life. But as I read it recently, I began to understand Jesus is saying so that he could see God in his life. It wasn't so that the works of God could be made manifest for everyone to see, It was that the works of God could be made manifest in Him. Not that others could see. It doesn't matter if others can see your Christianity. If you know your Christianity is valid, it will ooze out. And maybe what this blind man needed was for someone to care for him. Someone to take time out. And someone to do something spectacular. This miracle was not so others can see. We're about to learn that everybody else doubted. But this miracle was performed for him personally. Is God doing anything for you? Has he won victories for you? I believe like the psalmist in Psalm 40 and verse 2. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit and of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. You see, I I don't want to be selfish tonight and I, I don't want to be haughty tonight, but I just believe it doesn't matter what God's doing in your life to, as much to me as it matters what he's doing in my life. 
I need to know that he's my God. I need to know he still claims mountains. I need to know he still walks on the water. And if I see it in your life, it matters none to me. If it's just a sermon to you, it will never affect you. But when it's a God doing things for you, that's when it becomes real. You don't think news had traveled to this man that Jesus could do miracles? News was everywhere Jesus was doing great things. Ever since the very first miracle Jesus performed, you don't think people would come around? You would not believe what's happening. It was not his hearing he had a problem with. I just believe that this man needed something personal. And I believe tonight that there's people in this room that need something personal as well. You can read all the Christian literature that says God is good, but until you've tasted it, you don't know. Until you've seen the sunrise, you never can know the colors. Until you've seen God work in your life, no one can describe it. There's no adjectives, there's no verbs, there's no language that can tell how good God is until you know personally. And this man experienced what what a miraculous experience this man must have been involved in. It, It must have, I promise you, it changed his life. So we see the first chapter now is a miraculous experience. And and that is good preaching, man. I tell you, that's fun to preach on right there. A miraculous experience. But we move on now to chapter 2. The second chapter in this man's biography, and that is a message extracted. Now, from verses 8 to 23... Jesus leaves the scene and others begin to question what's gone on. Right now, look in verse 8. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him, but he said, Heh. <laughs> I am he. I'm the guy. Because uh, this street is beautiful. This, this, this building is beautiful. I didn't used to have these. I didn't used to be able to see, but I'm the guy. Verse 10. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? That's a reasonable question. He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Now that's the neighbors. We see a group of people who's very familiar with this man. They, They all pass by him daily. They're the neighbors. They're the people that are accustomed to him. And even it was them that knew what his face looked like. He said, surely this isn't the guy, right? Surely. Now, this is the, my favorite crowd that gets involved here in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him uh, how he received his sight. 
He said unto them, He put clay upon my eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Now they're not speaking of the blind man there. They're speaking of Christ. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them, and Jesus causes division. Oh, the world and and Christians, they will separate. Uh, You must decide on the one factor of Jesus because it decides how you will live the rest of your life. Do not be uh, uh, wobbly on your definition and your opinion of Jesus Christ. Because there was division among these people. Verse 17. They say unto the blind men again, We're having trouble deciding. Some of us think he might be who he says he is. Some of us don't think he is because he doesn't honor the Sabbath day. What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. Not that Jesus was a prophet, but that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth, we know not, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. So we've looked at the marvelous miracle that's taken place, this extravagant, amazing miracle. God has done a work in his life. Jesus has come by and touched this man. And and I just imagine this man is a little bit excited about the things that have gone on. He's seeing things he's never seen before. Uh, Life is brand new to him. And now these groups of people begin to doubt him. I see, first of all, the neighbors doubting. Verses 8 through 10, we read how they come up and they say, I don't even know if this is the guy. I mean, before... Uh, uh, we saw him begging, and, and, and but this doesn't look like the same guy. Once you encounter Jesus, you never look like the same guy. I wonder if that's the reason why they had such difficulty actually saying that was the old man. Because when the new man comes around, it's hard to see the old man. And right now, the neighbors, even everybody, that every day they probably passed money to him. As he was begging for alms, every day they were the people that were supporting his family and helping him get food on the table. Every day these people were accustomed to seeing his face and now they walk by and they say, I don't think he's the same guy. Do people have trouble remembering what you used to look like? Because when you meet Christ and he makes a difference in your life, you'll look different. I see that the neighbors doubted, but look now, and this is one of my favorite parts of the story, the naysayer's dilemma. Now, they don't want to admit Jesus is who he says he is. And so they have a couple problems, and they begin to come up with scenarios as to why 
this is not going to work out. And first of all, they begin to attack the authority of the miracle worker. Do they not in verse 16? Look with me. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. So they look at Jesus and they say, well, obviously he was not honoring God's law, so how could uh, somebody do this and honor God? And it's beautiful because this is the same argument they have with Jesus all the time. And he says, how can a kingdom divided stand? How can a house uh, divided stand? How can a kingdom set against itself stand? I am working for God. Why would the devil cast out the devil? And so they began to attack the authority of Jesus Christ. And make no bones about it, Christian. This world is attacking the authority of Jesus Christ. They're attacking his person. They're attacking his deity. And every day they try writing books and teaching our kids that he is not the Messiah. That he is not the God of the universe. Jesus is who he says he is. But this world will attack him every chance they get. And that's the first area they'll hit. Does he really have authority? Is he really who he said he was? And that's the first area they look. Now, look in verse 18. They, they, obviously, the authority of the miracle worker brought division among them. That wasn't going to work. So now we see the authenticity of the miracle itself. Verse 18, now, I think this is hilarious. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. So they just say, well, you weren't blind and you, you always had your sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So in order for them to confirm the actual events that took place, they call the man's parents from birth. And they say, is this your son? And they said, yes, that's our son. And now we don't know how he can see. We don't know why he can see. Uh, He's old enough. You listen to him. He can speak for himself. but, But this is our son. The world will try to attack the authenticity of what you have. For a lot of people, what we're doing tonight is just whoopee, goopy emotion. In fact, some call us weak because we need something to believe in. I call them weak because they believe in themselves. I have someone higher than me. I have someone greater than me. I have someone with answers and and provision and, and, and assets far beyond my own control. Friend, you keep believing in yourself, and I'll just believe that there's a God in heaven that loves me, and I'll just believe that he sent his son to die for me. You call it weakness, but my friend, I was weak in the flesh, and I needed a Savior who was strong. You see, they were attacking the authenticity of the the miracle itself. Don't let people talk you out of how real and genuine the love of the Savior is. Don't let yourself talk you out of the real authenticity of His love for you. You say, what do you mean? I, I mean, don't let your past failures guilt you into thinking that He can't love you. Oh, often we're the person that begins to doubt the authenticity. Could he really love me? He can. Can he really see past all that I've ever done? He did. 
Don't let people doubt the authenticity of the miracle worker himself. Look, I love the neighbors doubting and, and the naysayers' dilemma. That's where it gets good. I mean, the message extracted is wonderful, but now we move on to chapter 3. And this is great. They don't like everything that's going on so far. The Pharisees don't like the answers. They don't like the problem that's occurring. So now they bring this man in for a second time, and they basically, and this is what I equate it to, they put him on trial, and they give him a manufactured explanation. Look here in verse 24 through 34. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. They're telling him what to say. They're telling him what to do. And even though they have no evidence, just like the people that threw Christ on the cross for things he didn't know wrong, uh, uh, they say, no, we know he's a sinner. He's for sure a sinner. They're telling him what to say. Verse 25, I like this. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind... Now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? I mean, it's like, you're really convinced he did this for you. Okay, explain it to us again. Now they put him on trial. And I can just imagine this man's frustration, can't you? This is the third time I've told the same story. I've said it the same way every time. It's the same clay. It's the same pool. It's the same Savior. What's your problem? I can imagine he's getting extremely frustrated. And so you begin to t- sense the tone in his voice in, in uh, uh, verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him. Remember last week we taught on discipleship? We taught on uh, Christianity is crowded. Discipleship has many vacancies. And now this word, uh, this man drops the D word on him. He drops discipleship down. And he says, uh, uh, would you become his disciple also? Then they reviled him and said, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could not do or he could do nothing. You see, we began to see this man defending the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 34, They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So at their best attempts, even though they don't like what's going on, they bring him in and they say, You give God the glory, for this man we know he's a sinner. 
And they begin to tell him exactly what he needs to be saying and what he needs to be doing. And this man just answers them, I don't really know a lot of doctrine. Uh, Look back at verse 24. I don't really know everything there is to know, but I know I was blind, but now I see. And while he's on the witness stand, he calls them to the evidence of change. He says, look, guys, you can be mad at whatever you want to be mad at. You can be upset at whatever you want to be upset at. You can doubt him. You can cuss him. You can do whatever you want. But I know is, he made a change in me. Therefore, I, I lived every day miserable. I heard things. I heard people pass by. I heard horses, and I just had to imagine what they sounded like. I heard voices, and I just had to guess what people's faces looked like. You can doubt him, but all I know is he made a change in me. See here, Jesus, when he impacts you, there will always be an evidence of change. James chapter 2, if you've ever spent time studying it or reading it, it's a very unique chapter in the Bible. Many may not even know uh, the original, uh, uh, the the translators uh, had trouble including the book of James in the canon, in the 66 books, because James chapter 2 at times seems like it's teaching a works justification. But that's not at all what it's teaching. And if you've ever studied it, you know that. But James chapter 2, verse 17 says this. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And this is the reason we know that James is not teaching a works type of salvation. He says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. So James is saying, you show me, not God, you show me your faith without works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. See, James isn't teaching a work salvation. He's teaching a salvation that works. It's not difficult to understand. James was just so motivated, so convinced that somebody who had been changed by God would notice a change. And so that's exactly what this man does, is they throw him on the witness stand saying, you need to say this. He says, I don't care what you're telling me. My story's not changing. I was blind. Now I see. And God made a change in my life. He points them to the evidence of change, and then he points them to the endeavors of Christ. Look, in verse 30, verse 30 through 33, He says, the man answered, the blind man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. He's saying, why are you having such a hard time accepting this? I was blind, now I see, and he's the guy that did it. He did a wonderful thing for me. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. So this man points to the fact that Jesus only does works that glorify God. And he points them to the fact that every effort and every endeavor that Christ has ever done only brought glory to God. 
And Jesus would never do anything apart from God's will or God's plan. See, friend, Christ does not make darkness darker. He doesn't make wicked more wicked. He doesn't make blind blinder. He makes darkness light. He makes bad good. He makes blind sight. And Christ only does things that glorify God. Does your life glorify God? If not, then my question is, what is Christ doing in you? Because He only does things that work for God. He says, I must work the works of Him that sent me. I must do the things of Him that told me to come. I, I I must do the things that glorify Him. I can do nothing except my Father sent me, tell me to do them. That's exactly what he says. And there's an evidence of change. And this man begins to point him to the fact that Christ's endeavors will always align with God's endeavors. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. We all know this verse, don't we? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things are passed away, become all things are become new. If you are in Christ, you are new to the glory of God. If you are in Christ, you are growing. If you are in Christ, you are changing. If you're abiding in Christ, you're becoming better. And I have to admit, if we ask this man tonight whether blind was better or sight was better, I don't think he would hesitate. Christ impacted me, and the latter was always better than the beginning. The man that I am now is much better than the man that I used to be. See, tonight, I just want to encourage you, become the man that God wants you to be because it will always be better than what you used to be. Oh, we see a manufactured explanation. Now look at the marvelous entrustment. This is chapter 4. And I want you to notice tonight that this man was not saved when when Jesus stopped by. He was not saved when Jesus healed his eyes and made him see. And chapter 4 is his salvation story. Verse 24, uh, I'm sorry, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. When we had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? that I might believe on him. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. This man had a very short biography in the Word of God. But right here in chapter 4, we see a better change than the one that even happened before. Because sight only does him good for about 70 years. We always want healings and curings and, and God to do miracles for our family who are in the hospital. Let us make sure our family knows the Lord as their Savior before we ever begin to ask for physical healing. And this man had had the opportunity to have Jesus' hand placed upon him and for his sight, or his blindness to be made sight. But now we see the real miracle. Because the first was just 
not even hard for Jesus. The first cost Jesus nothing. The second cost him his life. And we see this marvelous entrustment. I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus meets us where we are. Look in verse 34. Now, we talked about how these people had put him on stand. The Pharisees had basically put him on trial and said, Everything you're telling us, we don't like. You just need to hush up. You need to thank God. And this guy's a sinner and all this stuff. In verse 34, they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins. And dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So who is this man and who does he have? This man's a blind beggar. His parents are mentioned in this story, but they really just say things to save their neck. So I would even venture as far to say as this man is very, you know, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's a blind beggar, and his parents seem to have vacated the scene now. And the people that he has been taught to look up to, the Pharisees, have become enraged at this miracle that's taken place in his life, and they cast him out on the streets. Now read verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, you see, Jesus heard that this man had no one heard that this man had been cast out by those he had been taught from just a child to look up to as his example in the faith. He's been cast out in Jesus, and it says, and when, he, when Jesus found him, you see, Jesus knew the job was not complete. I love how that even though this man is not saved up until this point, he has vehemently defended Jesus. And he stood up and he said, you can call him whatever you want. I call him a prophet because he did something for me. You don't believe this is real? It's real to me. And even though he doesn't fully know everything about Jesus, because I don't know if he's a sinner or not, I know he did something for me. And Jesus hears that he's cast out and he goes to look for him. And to finish the job, not of healing his sight, but is of healing his soul. Giving him a home where, uh, even if he found no place to sleep that night, giving him a home where it matters. You see, Jesus meets us where we are. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We were without strength. We were the enemies of God. And in due time, Christ died for us. He meets us where we are, but this is great. Jesus takes us where we cannot go. Verse 38, this man realizes that he's not just a prophet. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of God? And the man says, who is that? Uh, who, who is he that I might believe on him? Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
notice the man never worshipped when he just healed his sight. I'm sure he was excited. I mean, no doctor could have done that for him. Nobody before had ever been able to do that for him. But it did not draw worship. It was only when Jesus filled the hole that was in his heart that called for worship. You know why a lot of people's worship is empty? Because they haven't experienced real salvation. When it's real, worship's real. When it's real, you know Jesus did something for you. And that is the biography of this man. Just a man who was nothing special. Just a man who who most people pass by. Chapter 1 is a pretty fun one to preach, but chapter 4 is the best one of all. When Jesus changed his life. Christian, today, tomorrow, most of us will never become famous enough to have a biography written about us. We will never be able to sit down at a table and and take a pen and say, my life has accumulated some type of knowledge or some type of wealth or or something that I believe others need to know about me. And so uh, we'll never have a, uh, we'll never write a biography. We'll never have one. It's all right. But I promise you, every day you author your own. And though the pages may never be published, the ink drips off the pages of your actions. I wonder if the ink says Jesus has made a change in your heart. Because you have a biography. And people every day outside these walls read it. You know why the Pharisees didn't like reading this man's biography? They didn't like what it said. You know why a lot of people won't like reading your biography? Because they won't like what you have to say. But I just believe a biography that has Jesus' impact in it will be different from the first chapter to the fourth.